From the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio, this is Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. Injured in Georgia? Make the right call to the law office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. Injury Insider is presented by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs. Hello and welcome to Injury Insider with Derek Hayes on Business Radio X. We are broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio in the Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. This show will answer legal questions and debunk personal injury myths with insight and expertise. For nearly 25 years, Derek Hayes has exclusively represented injured parties in Georgia. Now he'd like to put that knowledge to work for you. My name is Lita Brooks, and it's my pleasure to introduce the star of the show, Derek Hayes. Good afternoon, Derek. Good afternoon, Lita. Good to see you again. Thank you. You always as well. Before we begin, a quick reminder that Injury Insider is brought to you by Status Home Design, your one-stop shop for all your home and gift needs, and by the law office of Derek M. Hayes. Injured in Georgia, make the right call to the law office of Derek M. Hayes at 404-777-HURT. All right, let's jump right in. Well, you and I were talking before the show about your main topic that you want to discuss today. I think that a lot of your listeners have heard the phrase negligent security. I know we've probably touched on it here and there, but I'm not sure that everyone really knows what it means when it comes to personal injury claims. So let's start with the basics. I'll start with the basics. Well, I'm going to kind of give you the layman's term for negligent security in the layman's definition. Very simply, negligent security claims occur when someone is injured on the premises of another where the owner of the premises did not provide a safe environment to protect their guest from criminal activities occurring on the or around the premises where the person winds up being injured because of the criminal activity. Uh, really, there are two statutes in Georgia that address this directly. One is OCGA 5131, which talks about the duty an owner or occupier of land has to an invitee. If you remember, we've talked about that statute before in the slip and fall cases, which are also called premises cases. Also, 5132, which is the duty of the owner of the premises to licensees. So we've talked about invitees. We've talked about licensees. But these are the same statutes. It's just a, um, applying those to the facts of a negligent security case. So they apply in both places. Sure, sure. Correct? And negligent security cases, um, think of areas like, for example, apartment complexes, hotels, uh, shopping malls, a convenience store, maybe a gas station, uh, parking decks. That's another Mm -hmm. one. Or parking lots. Uh, But today, I want to start with a story about a negligent security case that didn't arise in any of those locations. Instead, it arises at, or rose at, Six Flags. Okay, and for our listeners that are following us nationwide and they don't know what Six Flags is. Six Flags Over Georgia is a major amusement park. Uh, it, it's a company that owns several throughout the country. I've been to the one in Texas. I know they have them, I think, in uh, maybe Virginia and a few other locations. But Six Flags is a major tourist attraction here in metro Atlanta. Uh, lots of roller coasters and thrill rides and those kind of things. But this story specifically occurred at Six Flags back in 2007. And well, the events, and we'll talk about the facts in a second, led to uh, a case that went all the way to the state Supreme Court here in Georgia that really more clearly defined negligent security claims. 
Um, so to give you some facts about this, and, and this may be a case that when I start talking about it, you remember some of this from the news, because it was not only on, on the news here in Metro Atlanta, but it actually made national news okay. because of what happened. But again, back in 2007, a 19-year-old kid named Joshua Martin went to Six Flags for the day with a couple of his buddies. One was his brother, another was just a friend. They'd gone to celebrate the fact that one of them had gotten into college. Um, they had spent the entire day, about 9 o'clock around closing, they were uh, deciding it was time to leave. They had ridden the bus there that day. So as the park closed, they decided to walk across to a nearby hotel to use the restroom. And then they went stood at the bus station. Uh, in fact, I think Joshua himself jumped up on a little retention wall there that, that is by the bus stop just to simply wait for the bus to come. Um, now, this is interesting because the bus stop itself is not inside the confines of the Six Flags, Six Flags Amusement Park or their parking lot. It's simply an adjacent area where the bus stop is located. So as they waited there, uh, about 200 feet away from the actual property line of Six Flags, a group of around 40, estimated to be about 40 people, approached them without any provocation whatsoever, and one of them began to severely beat Joshua with brass knuckles. Oh, my, oh my gosh. Yeah, the kid's just this waiting on terrible. the bus. Yeah. And ultimately, those, uh, those injuries led to oh. permanent brain damage. Oh, um, so gosh. he was severely he was standing injured. there waiting on the bus. Yeah, just waiting on the bus. He'd spent the day with his buddies again, celebrating Poor the fact kid. that a friend had gotten into college. Yeah. And as he's sitting waiting for the bus, this group approached them and the attack occurred. And as I said, he wound up with brain damage. Um, again, I, I've stressed this and I want to stress it again. The actual physical attack occurred at the bus stop, but not on the property owned by Six Flags owned or operated or any uh, legal responsibility, so to speak, to the the bus stop itself. Um, but there's a lot more to the story, a lot more to, to what led to this. So in discovery and in interviews and, and talking to those folks at the scene and even the police investigation itself, it was later discovered that the group of attackers had been harassing and threatening multiple people there, multiple patrons within the park the entire day just randomly walking up to people trying to instigate fights and creating problems. And the group had actually grown over the entire day from a few people to the estimated about 40 that, that wound up attacking Joshua uh, that evening wow. closing time. So Six Flags Security had been told about these kids that were walking around. They were young. I say young. Um, I think the oldest may have been mid-20s and, and even into the early teens. Um, Six Flags Security had been told about them threatening other guests and they had been uh, warned, you know, these people are, are saying they're going to be waiting for us in the parking lot. Uh, they're, they're very intimidating. And so they had what we call actual knowledge. And I'll talk more about that later when we discuss the law. But Six Flags had actual knowledge of the inherent danger of these, well, for lack of a better term, these thugs walking around threatening people within the park. And so because of that, um, they didn't do anything. They, they allowed them to stay in the park. They didn't kick them out. Nothing was done to try and eliminate the threat or to um, avoid potential problems arising later. So when the confrontations inside the park against all these people happened, interestingly enough, Joshua, was, was, Joshua and his friends uh, were not known to be any of those that had been approached in the park during the day. So these, uh, when this attack occurred later that night, they were complete strangers to them. Okay. They had never encountered each other, never talked or had any coarse words with yeah. each other during the day. Um, so as some of the patrons left Six Flags that evening, because this group was still congregating around the exit to Six Flags, this uh, group of, of bad actors, 
um, Six Flags security wound up escorting many people out to their cars into the parking lot. So there was some concern there, and and the fact they escorted people kind of again imputed that sure. knowledge on them. Sure, it shows that there was a fear and a threat. Sure, and they continued the bad group continued to roam around the outside of the gates, even into the parking lot, kind of looking for a victim. Uh, you would think based oh, on their actions. They found Joshua. Mm-hmm. They were just looking for trouble. I mean, there's no yeah. other way to put it. And so as the group continued to roam around, they wound up encountering Joshua as he was there on the wall. And as mm-hmm. I said, they approached him and attacked him and beat him severely with brass knuckles, causing brain damage. So a case was eventually filed, and as the case went to the the state court in Cobb County, the jury wound up ruling in his favor. Additional evidence came in at the trial. In fact, an off-duty police officer that that, uh, investigated this found out that this was an area around Six Flags and inside Six Flags. It was known for lots of gang-like group activities within the park itself. And gang-like, gang-like activities, including um, tagging inside the parking lot or around the parking lot. And here's an interesting one. They were gang tags inside the men's locker room for the employees at Six Flags. So when you say gang tags, we're talking spray paint on the wall. Okay. So spray paint on I the walls inside. Okay, I'm looking at you blankly, right. like, am it's I just supposed to know what that, that means? Right. I don't. So they were literally uh, tagging walls inside okay. the the men's locker room for employees at Six Flags. There were also known to be many Six Flags members or employees that were uh, affiliated with gangs, to the extent that some of the group of forty were seasonal employees of Six Flags who were with this group. So they weren't on the clock at the time. Mm-hmm. They weren't working, but they were part of the group instigating trouble with inside the, inside the park. And they were also clearly some of the ones that may have tagged the men's locker room. All of that came out in the actual trial. Now, the trial itself in 2013, now remember this occurred in 2007. Okay. So by the time it went to court and went through the jury, it was 2013. The jury returned a verdict of $35 million for Joshua. Wow. Now, in prior podcasts, we've talked about apportionment of mm-hmm. the, the damages. And uh, we have, in Georgia, kind of a modified way to do that. And the jury determined that, that Six Flags was 92% at fault for the attack because they had notice, actual knowledge, because the, the uh, security had been told about this group. They had implied knowledge because they knew there were gang tags or should have known with reasonable inspection there were gang tags inside the locker room. There was known gang activities for employees that worked there at the time. So the knowledge factor was there for Six Flags, and they did nothing. So ultimately, it was 35, 35 million. As I said, 92% of that, which is about $32.2 million, uh, was assessed against Six Flags. The remaining amount of the verdict was against the individuals. And there were four that were really the aggressors, the attackers, that were named defendants in the lawsuit. Now, that case wound up going to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals uh, reversed part of it and, and sustained part of it, but eventually it made its way all the way to the state Supreme Court. Okay. And the argument really was the fact that this attack physically occurred off of the property owned by Six Flags. Okay. As I've stressed many times, this was not a Six Flags bus stop. This was a uh, bus stop that was about 200 feet away from the Six Flags property. 
Do we know if it was a Six Flags bus? No, not a Six Flags bus. Uh, MARTA. Just Marta a, a is, bus a station. Yeah, okay. Yeah, MARTA is, for those that, that aren't here in Metro Atlanta, it's it's the transit bus system that, that carries people all around uh, Metro Atlanta and, and into the suburbs. So it was a MARTA bus station. So these guys, these three, were just mm-hmm. simply Going waiting home. on the MARTA bus sure. to go home. Right. And the reason why, even though this did not occur on the physical property of Six Flags, the reason why Six Flags was held liable is because the knowledge that was not only imputed knowledge, but factual, actual knowledge of the bad actors, and they you know, escorted people to the parking lot, they knew trouble was brewing. And it imputed on them a responsibility, a duty owed to anyone that would be threatened by this. They allowed this to continue to, to escalate throughout the entire day. And so Joshua and his buddies, who had left Six Flags, who were simply waiting on the bus, should have been protected by the security or warned at least of the the dangers uh, of that crowd and that that known gang activity the threats that had been made throughout the day six flags did nothing at all to protect them so the attack occurred and as i said he wound up with severe brain damage um so again the case itself went to trial in 2013 it took until 2017 before it made it to the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court ruled on it. And they did uphold the the underlying verdict of $35 million with a little over 32 assessed against uh, Six Flags. Wow. I mean, I just, I feel so bad for the kid, for his family. I, You know, we've gone to Six Flags all the time, and I don't want that to put a bad taste in my mouth and anyone's mouth, but it's just such a, it's such a gut-wrenching story to hear, right? Yeah. It could have happened to anyone. Right. And, and Six Flags tried to... Um, I guess, wash their hands, so to speak, of the situation by saying, well, they weren't on our property. Nah, they, they left. They weren't here anymore. They were at the bus stop. And the court ruled, no, that's not going to insulate you from the problem that was started, not only inside your park, but in the parking lot. And also, too, I, I pointed this out as well, some of that group of 40 were seasonal employees of Six Flags. Now, they weren't on the job at the time, but again, the gang activity mm-hmm. was clearly well known to Six Flags, and nothing was done to eliminate that. So before your story, you had given us some more examples of places, uh, the apartment complex, hotel, convenience stores, parking decks. Um, So if you're talking about someone being the victim of a crime, uh, the story with Joshua at Six Flags or really anywhere else, how can the owner of the property be held liable? I know you've hit this answer, but but go through it again, because a lot of us are small business owners. I am a small business owner, right? So when someone else commits the crime and injures a person and it happens at one of these type of locations. Yeah, good point. And it's not the employee of the business. It's a, you know, a criminal, someone who comes onto their property and commits the crime. And as you're saying, how can they be held liable for the, the criminal acts of someone they don't control? Well, the, the simple answer is it comes down to knowledge. Um, you know, we've talked about it, like I said before, that there's a tremendous requirement of proving knowledge in, in many personal injury claims. Um, as a refresher, I know it, I said this before, there's actual knowledge, there's constructive or implied knowledge. Um, there are three basic elements to proving a negligent security claim, and you're going to hear knowledge in this. Number one, you must prove the legal owner or owners of the property who that is. You, you've got to show who had the responsibility. Walmart, uh, you know, grocery stores, Publix, Kroger, whatever. You've got to show who the legal owner is of the property. Next, you've got to prove that the property owner knew or should have known the potential for injuries to happen but did not take necessary steps to prevent it. 
And when I say injuries occurring, I mean from criminal activity, actual criminal activity in the area. And number three, you must prove that the premises had insufficient security at the time. You know, another way to sum it up is to say that the criminal act must have been foreseeable by the landowner or the business owner. In fact, Georgia courts have found that criminal acts are foreseeable in, in a variety of circumstances where there's substantially similar crimes that previously occurred there or crimes that occurred near the premises. You mentioned two things just now that I want to clarify a little bit more. First, you use the phrase insufficient security, and then you referred to foreseeable criminal acts. All right, let's start with insufficient security. What does that mean, and who determines whether the security is sufficient? Sure. Well, insufficient security means that the security steps taken by the landowner or the business owner were not sufficient enough to protect anyone coming onto their premises for lawful purposes. You know, someone, again, think about shopping in a grocery store or Walmart, whatever. Um, And some examples of the steps they could take to secure their property would be fences, uh, locking doors or access doors, gates, uh, you know, depending on the height of the fence or the height of the gate, you know, it could be drawn, uh, pulled into issue keypad entries where you put in a key code to get in window bars you know you kind of walk a fine line with those metal bars on windows because you also too have to allow an ability to escape from a fire for example Mm -hmm. so there's a fine line you walk there also think about security steps involving cameras uh, maybe motion sensor lights or additional street lights in the area if it's a very dark uh, neighborhood or, or business area and the streets aren't well lit well that's something that you can also do on your own add street lights Uh, Security guards or even off-duty police officers. Those are all ways to enhance the security around your property. And ultimately, to answer the the second part to that that question about um, insufficient security, it's a determination that must be made by a jury in an eventual trial. Jury's going to hear all the facts, the evidence, and the testimony about what security was provided, but it's going to be a question for them to answer whether or not that security was sufficient based on the circumstances surrounding that neighborhood or that area where the business was. So it's the job of the plaintiff's attorney to prove that there was insufficient security. And it's the job of the defense attorney to allege, well, yeah, there was sufficient security. And then the jury has to determine who's, who, whose side they're going to fall on with that one. I wouldn't want to be on the jury. Yeah, you would. No. No, I don't know. I don't want to make these decisions. Well, as an attorney, I can tell you, I'll never be picked for a jury. No attorney would ever pick another attorney to be on their jury. I'd rather be the attorney. I've said many times on your podcast, I feel like I'm getting my legal education here, and I'm going to stick with that. I don't want to be on the journey. All right, let's go to the part two of that question. Uh, Now define what you mean by foreseeable criminal acts. How do you prove that something is foreseeable? Okay. Well, foreseeability is defined very simply as something that is reasonably anticipated. Okay? Okay. Think about that. Reasonably anticipated. Well, first, remember that a business owner owes a duty to protect its customers while visiting their business. We talked about duty before. Mm -hmm. You owe a duty. If you breach the duty and someone is harmed, well, that's the makings of a tort, a personal injury claim. A tort is a harm against someone else. That's not criminal in nature. Sure. We've talked about that right. not even being criminal, but with injuries sure. and negligence. Sure. A car wreck claim, sure. a slip and fall, a dog bite, whatever. Right. So a plaintiff must prove that the business owner or property owner has reason to anticipate that criminal activity may or premises. Again, reasonably anticipated. That's foreseeability. If you can prove that they knew or should have known, and we're bringing knowledge back into this, knew or should have known about the existence of criminal activity around their business, around their property, then they are required to exercise, and I'm going to put this in quotes, 
ordinary care to guard against injury from the danger. So what qualifies as ordinary care is really kind of a question as well that a jury has to answer, like we talked about with insufficient security. If the jury determines that the business or property owner did not do enough to show ordinary care, then they can uh, find that there was a, a breach of the duty to protect their customers from that criminal activity that led to them being injured. You know, whether it's a gunshot or brass knuckles, unfortunately, like Joshua had yeah. to, to deal with, or you know any other kind of danger. You think about carjackings. Uh, unfortunately, lots of injuries occur with that. So what would some foreseeable considerations look like? Good question. Um, think about these questions as you're, you know, considering whether or not there's sufficient security, whether or not this would have been foreseeable. Uh, were there any security lights in the parking lot or the surrounding outside areas that weren't working? The lights were there, light poles there, but it's not working and nobody's done anything to fix it. And if you go through discovery in a, in a lawsuit, you find that those lights have been out for six months. Well, why haven't they changed it? That's potentially not ordinary care and, and opens the door to negligent security. Uh, were the areas that needed the lighting, uh, were they too dark you know, without the lighting? Should more lights have been added if they were still too dark? Um, adding lights is not a problem at all. It's a very inexpensive fix to uh, light up the dark areas that can lead to criminal activity. Were there any areas in the parking lot or the surrounding areas that would provide cover for a criminal to hide? Bushes that are overgrown, garbage that's piled up. Uh, you think about apartment complexes, old furniture that mm -hmm. people will throw away. Um, old cars that wind up in parking lots or and kind of debris that, that collects around businesses or buildings that uh, are allowing someone to hide to jump out and, and carjack or I'm, attack. Yeah, I'm thinking gates, yeah. different things like that. If, are they operable? Um, exactly. Security gates, yeah. right. Are they wide open? Uh -huh. Think about um, gates that, that are electronic gates that, that you go into an apartment complex or some neighborhoods. If that gate arm stays open way too long, it allows more than just the one vehicle to come in. Sure. So somebody could be you know, parked in a parking space by the gate waiting for a resident to come home. The resident goes in, the gate stays up. Well, they're going to floor it and get through there. Sure. Happens I don't all think of myself as a criminal, but I'll sneak through any gate. Yeah, I mean, right. It, it, right. <laughs> you know, it's easy sometimes. You right. know, if, if you, well, I'm coming to see my friend. They live in a yeah. guarded uh, or a gated neighborhood with a, yeah, a dial, I mean. a yes. keypad, and you've yes. got to dial them, and you're not sure if you're going to get them. Well, they may be out in their backyard or on their deck. Well, it's easy. Just follow that other Absolutely. car. Absolutely. Uh, but again, if that arm stays up too long, then that's potentially not ordinary care and could lead to a foreseeable criminal act. You know, are there multiple entrances to the parking lot uh, around the building? Um, if there is a fence, is it in disrepair? Is the gate broken? Uh, are parts of the gate pushed over, the fence pushed over, are parts missing? Are there any cameras in the parking lot or around the building? Are those cameras working? Are those cameras recorded? Uh, we talked about this in the prior podcast. There are lots of security cameras in lots of places that are there and they're working, but they're not recording for whatever reason. So it's a live video feed, but you can't go back and capture it if you've not recorded it up until then. Um, are there security guards? Are they walking around the premises? Are they wearing uniforms? Is it 24 hours? All those things you have to think about uh, when you're talking about negligent security. Um, and really it comes down to the, the criminal activity in the area. If I open a store and I find out in researching the area where I'm gonna build my store, that the crime rate there is 30 or 40 or 50% higher than another area, well, that's gonna potentially fall in a high crime area, and it's gonna require me to employ a much greater security 
uh, force, uh, again, whether it's people or cameras or lighting or any of those things. And, and you know, I could mention a few others. Um, you know, think about the, uh, the crime rates during the days as opposed to the crime rates at night. Do you need to add security at night? Or is it early morning the crimes occur typically in that area? It's research you need to do. And is it a kind of business that by nature tends to attract criminal activity? Think about a bar, a liquor store, an apartment complex, nightclubs. Some of those are those that tend to bring in a more criminal, um, a little more criminal activity than some other ones may. Again, things to think about. Uh, visible broken windows, broken doors. All those things are things that can be ordinary care issues that would lead to foresee- foreseeability of criminal activity to occur. It all comes down to knowledge. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Because right? I'm thinking about, well, if you, let's say you inherit a business or, or the area that your business is in that you've had for 20 years, the area declines and is not as safe as it once was however many years ago that you started your business. It doesn't mean that if something happens on the property that you're automatically at fault. It means that a jury is going to determine right. if a you took all these steps right. and, and mm-hmm. that's the not, it all comes down to what did you know and did you take the right steps? Sure. Think about it. If you're out of town, you're out of town for work, you're out of town for vacation and you go online and you uh, pick a hotel based on it's patrolled, it's gated, it's close to downtown, it's close to an area you want to be on your vacation or on your business trip they're generally not going to give you criminal statistics on their website. Right. That's they, not what they want no, to tell they you they need about. money. They need... <laughs> right, exactly. Revenue. So you go to a hotel out of town. You're not familiar with the area at all. You check in, and you see some very sketchy things going on in the parking lot, and it turns out there is a, a propensity for crime to occur in that area, a history of crime. Then it's on the property owner to advise you, warn you, educate you, explain to you, Look, you, you, you don't want to leave anything in your car. I, I know you're a guest here, and we want to take care of you. That's why we have fences. That's why we have gates. That's why we have a security patrol guy out there um, looking at the area. So think about crimes that would lead to someone being injured uh, in those areas, an armed robbery, assault, battery, burglary, mugging, you know, even horrible things like rape. Yeah. Rape cases are, are many times going to lead to negligent security um, claims. Sure. An apartment complex or a, any kind of business where, uh, again, unfortunately criminal activity happens and they don't warn or advise you about what's going on. I'm thinking, unfortunately, a college campus. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, if there's a, uh, um, an employee that, that you bring on to your, your um, business and you don't do a proper back, background check, and that employee um, is known to have had convictions for rape or armed robbery or you know attempted murder, whatever it may have been. And you bring them on to your staff, and they injure someone while working for you in your business. Well, that's an easy claim because they're employed by you. That that goes back to respondeat superior. We've talked about in, yes, in a prior we have podcast. Talked about that. We're talking about something different though. Right. We're talking about someone who's not employed by you who comes onto your property. Sure and you knew or should have known about the inherent danger of them being there. So Georgia courts have also talked about foreseeability in in two different ways. There's what we call substantially similar crimes. In other words, crimes that have previously occurred at or near around that premises that, again, helps to lead to that knowledge element. They knew or should have known because substantially similar crimes have occurred there on a regular basis. 
The other one that the Georgia court, courts talk about is a volatile situation. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you know what that means? What would you consider to be a volatile situation in a negligent security case? Well, I'm thinking of a disgruntled customer, somebody wreaking havoc, right? You somebody somebody coming in yeah. and, and just being very irate yeah, or a group it. of people, something like that. Right. And, and there's a case on point, in fact, that, that it's almost exactly what you just described. Good old days. Good old days was a restaurant slash bar here in Metro Atlanta. Uh, there was a case, good old days, um, Yancey was the, the name of the plaintiff. Uh, it basically a restaurant, nightclub, bar, whatever you want to call it. But uh, good old days was sued because Yancey was attacked and brutally beaten there inside the good old days premises. And so good old days claim, well, it's a criminal act. We, we had no control over the situation. We didn't know what was going to happen. But in evidence and testimony, it came out that other people, including employees, had heard this aggressor, the attacker, yelling at the other patient, uh, patient, pay, uh, patron, patron, yes. patron, there yes. we go, uh, loudly for about four or five minutes. So this attacker had been screaming and yelling, verbally assaulting the, the eventual victim for four or five minutes. And good old days did nothing about it right. to, to you know, deflect or to calm down a very volatile situation. So when the attack actually occurred, good old days could have prevented it and it came out in testimony and they were held liable in a negligent oh. security case so it, it's the kind of claim that you know it's it's facts determine whether or not there's a case there facts are that important really in any case but as an attorney it's my job to investigate to talk to people that were there that night to go back and look at crime statistics in the area when someone comes to me with a potential negligent security act uh, security claim i've got to find out um, what the crime stats are for that business specific. If there are, um, you know, 10 calls a month for, say, for example, prostitution occurring in a hotel or armed robberies in the parking lot, and it's gone on for a long, long time and nothing's been done about it. Well, that's that path you walk down to be able to prove a negligent security claim. If I find that, uh, you know, there there's an area where cars are broken into, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily a, a physical attack, but they can also be held liable for some of the property crimes. If it's a, um, you know, an area where they require you to valet park and the valet company is, is owned by the same business uh, and, you know, an attack occurs as you're getting out of your car, waiting for your car to come back to, to, you know, to, to go home. But also, too, if your car gets you know, vandalized or right. something happens. So there are all kinds of derivatives okay. that come from this. Yeah, but lots of examples. It's, sure. it's my job as the attorney to investigate, talk, go out and inspect the scene myself, talk to the investigating officers, go back. If there are prior crimes, find those victims. You know, what happened to you? Did, did the staff at this uh, hotel know about your attack? Did you ever talk to them about it? And if I can find a course of behavior that leads to the knowledge, leads to the foreseeability, uh, also shows there was not ordinary care, or if they never took steps after someone was brutally raped at a business, they never took steps to add security or lighting or do anything to protect people in the future, then again, that opens the door for me to be able to pursue a very effective claim against them. Well, I know we normally uh, go with questions that our listeners have brought to the show 
And this show was prompted, and I know we're not going to get into the details of it at all, but I know that this was prompted by something, right? So my, my point is leading in that all this is being responded to. Send your questions in to Derek, and he's going to, uh, right now I'm going to turn it over to you so you can tell your listeners where, if it's a potential case, which a question turned into one, which is is it's an unfortunate situation, but it's good, right? You're yes, helping this yes. person. Uh, so again, it, no, you know, anything under the sun, if you want to ask Derek, if it's something you want us to cover in a podcast, if you have a question about negligent security, feel free. We will cover it in the show. So Derek, I'm going to turn it over to you to tell our listeners where they can go to contact you. Yeah. And one final point on this, as we go to, to how to reach out to me, uh, negligent security, like most every other personal injury claim it, it claims, it, it's imperative that you reach out immediately. Evidence disappears, people disappear, meaning that they're not, you're not going to know names, you're not going to be able to find them, they may move. Um, you know, the, the, um, the, the aggressor, the criminal, the one that, that was responsible for the attack may get a plea bargain and it prevents them from being able to testify about certain parts or they're not going to testify or not going to talk to you. There are all kinds of investigative things that need to be done immediately after you've been injured because of criminal activity on, on a business um, property or in their parking lot or as I said, any of the areas around it. So it's imperative that you reach out immediately if you think you have a claim. Now, how to reach me? My website is Derek, D-E-R-E-K, the letter M is in Matthew, Hayes, H-A-Y-S dot com. So Derek M. Hayes dot com. On my website, you can see the podcast tab. You can click on there and submit a question for me to answer in a future podcast. Just give me your name. That's all I need to know, and I'll, I'll address it and directly answer your question with general answers. I can't give specifics. Also, too, you can reach out to me through my, uh, uh, my website if you have a potential claim. And you can go a little more in detail. It's a different tab to give me the basic facts of your claim. I will be the one to call you. I'll be the one to respond, discuss it with you. And again, the initial consultation is free. If I can help you out, I'll be glad to do so. You can also go to my Facebook page, Law Office of Derek M. Hayes, Instagram, Law Office of Derek M. Hayes, or Twitter. You can find me on any of those um, social media sites as well as my website. My phone number is 678 225 zero nine seven zero that's my main number or four zero four seven 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 hurt well derek i know i speak on behalf of all of our listeners when i say thank you so much for your time and your expertise and doing this podcast i know i every show that you do i learn a tremendous amount of all beneficial useful information so thank you thank you and and keep them going and for you listeners again submit your questions and we will cover. There's there's lots more that we're going to dig into. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Injury Insider with Derek Hayes, presented by Status Home Design and the Law Office of Derek M. Hayes. Don't forget that you can enjoy any of our episodes anytime by visiting businessradiox.com, selecting the Gwinnett Studio, and then clicking Injury Insider with Derek Hayes. This program is also available on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, for Derek Hayes, I'm Lita Brooks, and you've been listening to Injury Insider on Business Radio X.